This is Passing Judgment, a podcast about the law and how it affects you. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson. Think of me as your personal law professor as we navigate the big legal questions of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers. Hey, everybody, it's Jessica. Welcome back to Passing Judgment. Today, I want to talk to you about Supreme Court breaking news. And that's not something that I typically say in November, because the really big Supreme Court cases, as we all know, tend to come out in June. The breaking news today is that the Supreme Court has come out with a code of ethics that they are supposed to adhere to. And this is essentially a code of conduct that tells them what they can and can't do. The punchline here is that what it boils down to is the code of conduct says, act in a way so that people think if they're parties before you and or if they're just the public watching what you do, that you are giving everyone a fair shake, that you are truly doing justice, that you are a neutral arbiter. All of these codes of conduct tend to be fairly detailed, but they all boil down to that simple fact. Let people know that you are doing justice. Let people know that you are looking at every case, that you haven't prejudged it, that you're not making a decision because your friend or somebody who donated money to you is involved in the case, because that ultimately leads to the crumbling of our respect for the judiciary. And let's remember that the judicial branch, they depend on our respect. There's no army that they can send in. This whole experiment of having a judiciary only works because when they come out with a ruling, even if we don't agree with it, we respect it and adhere to it. So that brings us to what happened this week. And for the first time in our nation's history, the Supreme Court has announced that it adopted, as I said, a code of conduct. Now, it is absolutely no coincidence that this comes after months, if not years, of criticism for the court. I wrote about this very briefly in an MSNBC column. Again, if you want to know more, I'll direct you to the column. But the announcement shows that public pressure matters, but it only goes so far because the really important thing to remember about this code of conduct is not what's in it, it's what's not in it, which is any enforcement mechanism. So let's be clear that the court would not have adopted this code were it not for the drip, drip, drip of ethics scandals that are currently facing our members of the court. And who are we talking about? We're talking about, for instance, Justice Clarence Thomas. As ProPublica reported, Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow funded Justice Thomas's luxurious trips, tuition for his great nephew, and the purchase of his mother's home. But Justice Thomas is not alone. ProPublica also reported that hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer helped to fund a 2008 trip that Justice Samuel Alito took to Alaska. Now, this might not sound particularly troubling, but there was a 2014 case that Justice Alito took part in that involved a dispute of one of Singer's hedge funds. And it involved a case where Singer's hedge fund was pitted against the country of Argentina. Typically speaking, you would expect Justice Alito to recuse himself. He didn't. All of which 
really it's just another incident begging for have a code of ethics Supreme Court justices. And this isn't something that only happens with respect to conservative justices. Just this year, the Associated Press reported that Justice Sonia Sotomayor's staff has essentially worked very hard, in some cases looking like they're almost strong-arming schools and libraries into purchasing her book. So those are members of the court staff. They are paid by taxpayer dollars, and they are working to help Justice Sonia Sotomayor sell books. Now, that doesn't violate any ethics code because there was no ethics code that applied to the justices at the time. This is a reminder that there's a binding ethics code that applies to every member of the federal judiciary except the nine Supreme Court justices. Or at least that was true until this week when the court adopted this, in my mind, kind of toothless code of conduct. So let's get back to this code of conduct. So let's be clear that the court didn't want to do this. They have before the code of conduct an 158-word statement of the court, which is basically an introduction to the new code. And the tone that the court takes really tells us this is your fault, public, for misunderstanding us. And out of those 158 words, two of them are the words misunderstanding. And what they're saying here is, you think that the justices act like there's no binding code of conduct that applies to them. But the truth is, there is no binding code of conduct that applied to them. And in many cases, I think the reality would indicate that's also how they act. The court also went to pains to tell us that while we, the public, basically strong-armed them or forced them into doing this, that for the most part, they wrote, these rules and principles are not new. And what these rules and principles really boil down to is these five canons. And they include things like cautions to avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety avoid outside activities that are inconsistent with, quote, the obligations of the judicial office, and also avoid political activities. The code has a lot more detail. It includes specific guidance for how the justices have to adhere to it. But the bottom line is it looks a lot like the code that's already binding on every other federal judge. But the difference here is and perhaps the biggest tell that the court was forced kind of kicking and screaming into doing this is that they gave us something, but they actually didn't give us much of anything because, again, there is no enforcement mechanism. And this is kind of like having criminal laws, but not having any jails or prisons. And Legally speaking, it didn't have to be this way. Legally speaking, the Supreme Court could have appointed something called an Article Three Inspector General to ensure that this code is followed. Now, I've talked about before and I've written about before that I'm not entirely sure if Congress could have created a binding code of ethics that applied to Supreme Court justices because that creates certain separation of powers concerns. That's one branch that's overseeing another branch. But there's nothing to prevent the Supreme Court from saying, we want a binding code of ethics and we want an inspector general to oversee it. That's not what they did here. And I think that's hugely significant. So 
in sum, what do we have? We have a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, but more than anything, we have an acknowledgement that the court's approval is at an all-time low and they needed to act. They needed to do something. And it's easy to see why they thought, oh, we've had ethical scandals. A code of ethics is just what the doctor ordered. But without an enforcement mechanism, what we have today is really the same as what we've had for years since the beginning of the court, which is just an assurance by members of the court that they will act according to certain ethical standards. So what do we have here? We have the court saying, we understand that we have to act. We understand that our entire credibility is based on the idea that people respect us as jurists, not just, for instance, as politicians in robes. But in the end, they didn't really take the enterprise seriously. This is really just a hope and a dream and a wish and a prayer that they act in a way that earns our respect. So I hope that helps you understand what this whole code of conduct is really about, what it means, and maybe more importantly, what it doesn't mean. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe. 